Due to the graphic nature of this woman's crimes, listener discretion is advised. This episode contains strong language and descriptions of murder, rape, and abuse that some people may find offensive. We advise extreme caution for children under 13. Eighteen-year-old Lisa Connolly was irritated. She didn't understand why her mom had dragged her to this cramped office. The whole thing was a major drag. Lisa complained to the lawyer guy, Jeff. What was the big freaking deal anyways? Jeff's eyes widened in response. He said, Lisa, you're involved in a murder. Lisa rolled her eyes and Jeff was baffled. His teenage client had helped orchestrate the gruesome murder of one of her peers, and yet there she sat, obstinate and agitated, demanding to know what all the fuss was about. At the same time, Oakland Park detective Brian Rupp was having a similarly surreal conversation with Lisa's best friend, 17-year-old Alice Willis, who everyone called Allie. Over the phone, Allie confessed that she was there the night Bobby Kent was murdered. And yet, when Detective Rupp told her she needed to officially turn herself in to the police, Allie said, why? I didn't do anything wrong. And Rupp, like Jeff, was flabbergasted. He explained to Allie that she couldn't be involved in a murder and not have done something wrong. As Jeff and Rupp tried to impress upon their teenage charges the severity of their crime, their words fell on deaf ears. Allie seemed to think she could cry her way out of the situation, while Lisa resorted to a sullen bluster. Finally, each man addressed the elephant in the room. In Florida, the punishment for murder in the first degree was death by the electric chair. That did it. Both Lisa and Allie fell silent as they separately realized it was a big deal. They had done something wrong and there would be a serious price to pay. Picture a murderer, a gangster, a thief, Did you picture a woman? We didn't think so. Society associates men with dangerous crimes. But what happens when the perpetrator is female? Every Wednesday, we examine the psychology, motivations, and atrocities of female criminals. Hi, I'm Vanessa Richardson, and you're listening to Female Criminals, a ParCast original. You can find episodes of Female Criminals and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. To stream Female Criminals for free on Spotify, just open the app and type Female Criminals in the search bar. At ParCast, we're grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love. Let us know how we're doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. This is our second episode on Lisa Connolly and Alice Willis. Last week, we discussed Allie and Lisa's disparate childhoods and explained how their friendship turned homicidal. Together, they plotted to kill Alice's former fling, Bobby Kent. This week, we'll explain how Lisa talked a group of teenagers into murdering Bobby Kent in cold blood. Finally, we'll delve into the trial that followed the crime, as well as its far-reaching effects on all the teenagers' lives. It was like that song that had been playing on the radio all summer. I would do anything for love, anything for love, but I won't do that. Sitting in her bedroom in Florida that evening in 1993, 18-year-old Lisa Connolly couldn't seem to find what that was. She'd yet to encounter the things she wouldn't do, the line she wouldn't cross for the love of her boyfriend, Marty Puccio. Adding to the stakes of the situation, Lisa was pregnant with Marty's child, and she was keeping it. 
That's why hours earlier at a local pizza parlor, Lisa denounced Bobby Kent. She accused him of bullying Marty, his supposed best friend, and raping her best friend, 17-year-old Allie Willis. For these crimes, Lisa sentenced Bobby to death. But now in her room with Allie, Marty, Allie's boyfriend, Donnie, and her new friend, Heather, Lisa was at a loss. Despite all her tough talk, she had no clue how to actually go about killing Bobby. So after much squabbling and deliberation, the five teens decided that they would take Bobby somewhere private and shoot him. Nice and clean. No witnesses. Then Lisa left the room. She returned with her mother's 25 caliber Beretta. Silence reigned as the teens marveled at the gun. It gave their conversation heft, transforming their words from some BS posturing among kids into something alluring, something adult. Then, according to author Jim Schutz's book, Bully, quote, the teens debated several methods of luring Bobby to his death. Lisa suggested Allie offer to sleep with Bobby again, but Marty wasn't convinced the offer of sex would be enough. So Allie suggested allowing Bobby to dog out her Mustang, which meant driving it really fast. All the teenagers agreed to this, certain that the combination of sex and driving a car at peak speed would be enough to entice Bobby. Throughout the discussion, Donnie, Allie's boyfriend, remained silent. He'd never dated someone as hot as Allie before, and he was desperate to keep her happy. Yet Donnie's presence on the planned night still posed a problem. Marty pointed out that Bobby would be suspicious if Allie claimed to want to sleep with him while her current boyfriend was standing right next to her. Donnie, wanting to prove he was willing to play along, offered to go as Heather's boyfriend instead. He received good-natured smiles and pats on the back in response. And with those genial expressions of social acceptance, the gang of suburban white teenagers cemented their plan to murder their mutual acquaintance, Bobby Kent. On the night of July 13, 1993, Allie called Bobby and told him she wanted to see him again. As agreed, she promised he could have sex with her and then dog out her Mustang. Like Marty guessed, Bobby accepted immediately. Before heading over to Bobby's, Lisa announced that Allie would be the one to do the honors. She would shoot Bobby. Before Allie could push back, Lisa stuffed her mother's Beretta in Allie's waistband, summarily ending the conversation. Bobby was excited to see Allie when she arrived at his house dressed in a revealing tube top and short shorts. However, when he learned that Lisa would be accompanying them, his excitement drained away. He told Marty, I don't want your fat bitch out there with us. But Marty explained that Lisa had to accompany him and Allie. She was the only one who knew the way to the location. Bobby groused some more, but ultimately agreed. Then, pushing Allie out of the way, he hopped into the driver's seat of the Mustang and tore out of his parents' driveway. Marty watched the car grow smaller in the distance, a grim expression on his face as he muttered, Goodbye. Asshole. Following Lisa's directions, Bobby drove out to a dark, remote stretch of land in the middle of nowhere. Then he screeched to a halt and hopped out of the car. Once Allie exited the car, he grabbed her, yanking her to him. Wanting to prevent Bobby from feeling the gun in her waistband, Allie stalled, asking Bobby, don't you want to dog out the car? According to Bully, Bobby lewdly thrust his hips at her, stating, Screw the car. Why don't I dog you out? Come on, baby. Give me a ride. Desperate, 
Ali wriggled out of his tight grasp. Once he was out of earshot, she hurried over to Lisa, saying, Get the gun off me, Lisa. If he finds it, he'll kill us. Lisa pulled the gun out of Allie's waistband. Then, disguising her fear as coquettishness, Allie slinked back into Bobby's hold. That's when Lisa knew it would be up to her. If she wanted Bobby dead, she would have to pull the trigger. Allie and Bobby made their way further down the deserted clearing. Her heart in her throat, Lisa shuffled after them. She watched as Allie knelt in front of Bobby and began to perform oral sex on him. Though Bobby was oblivious, Allie intermittently paused and made eye contact with Lisa, the question in her eyes clear. What the hell are you waiting for? Do it. Lisa's hands were clammy around the gun as she pointed it at the back of Bobby's head. Now was the moment, her moment. Now was her chance to make Bobby pay for beating Marty to a pulp, for raping Allie, and for raping Lisa herself. All she had to do was pull the trigger and she could wipe him out. It would be that simple. And yet, Lisa couldn't do it. Despite her tough talk, when it came down to it, Lisa couldn't end someone's life. She just didn't have it in her. So Lisa turned and made her way back to the car, leaving Allie and Bobby behind. The next day, when she was interrogated by the other teens, Lisa bluffed. She had a good reason for not blowing Bobby's brains out, and it had nothing to do with her being chicken. Lisa had seen on TV that detectives could trace bullets back to the killer. She wasn't about to kill Bobby with her mother's gun and risk cops showing up at her door. Marty received her explanations with sullen skepticism, and Lisa was scared. Ever since she'd promised to help get rid of Bobby, Marty had treated her with more affection. Lisa was desperate not to lose his love. So she reassured him, Bobby would die. She'd already secured a contact who could provide them with an untraceable gun. At this, Marty's face brightened in a wide smile. The contact Lisa was talking about was 20-year-old Derek Kaufman. According to Bully, Kaufman was six foot three inches tall, 235 pounds, and had a tattoo on his arm he said was an acronym for the gang he headed. The fact that he looked tough and his stepfather's last name was Esposito was enough to convince the kids in his neighborhood that Kaufman was, as he claimed, a straight-up mafioso hitman. In reality, Kaufman's life was less goodfellas and more goonies. He was an overgrown kid with a few petty misdemeanors under his belt, and the only gang he was a part of was the group of gullible teenage boys who followed him around and swallowed his every lie about killing people for the mob. This was the intel Lisa had caught wind of, so she contacted Kaufman and asked him to find her an untraceable gun. He agreed because, despite his claims to the contrary, Kaufman was sexually inexperienced. So when he realized Lisa had two cute girlfriends, he began to hope that if he helped them, he might get laid. Yet when Lisa, Allie, Heather, and Marty turned up at his house, Kaufman had no guns untraceable or otherwise, to show them. Instead, he spun a long, rambling tale about not having enough notice. Then, playing the role of the seasoned tough guy, Kaufman told them they needed to chill out and plan their attack better. Unfortunately for him, Lisa was playing a role too. She had cast herself as the Bonnie to Marty's Clyde. She snapped at Kaufman, snarling, Damn it, 
I want it done. I want him dead. I want him dead tonight. Not wanting to lose face, Kaufman nodded, agreeing. Guns were out, but there were other ways. Knives, baseball bats, whatever they could get their hands on. On the night of July 14, 1993, Lisa, Allie, Donnie, Heather, Kaufman, and Lisa's cousin, Derek, gathered at her house. Lisa had talked Derek into bringing over a baseball bat. Derek believed they'd use the bat to simply beat up Bobby. He was game to help after witnessing firsthand Bobby's cruelty towards Lisa. However, as he talked with the others, Derek realized that Lisa and her friends planned on killing Bobby. And yet, despite never having gotten in trouble a day in his life, Derek didn't leave. Before we continue with Derek's psychology, please note that I'm not a licensed psychiatrist or psychologist, but I have done a lot of research for the show. His decision can be explained by a social psychology phenomenon called mob mentality. According to Tamara Avant, psychology program director at South University, when people are part of a group, they can experience de-individuation. This makes them less likely to follow normal restraints and inhibitions and more likely to lose their sense of individual identity. So rather than leave the group, Derek suppressed his misgivings and handed over his baseball bat. His contribution brought the teen's weapons to a pathetic haul of two, including Donnie's survival knife. But they didn't let this dissuade them from their task. Instead, all six teenagers piled into cars and drove off to pick up Marty. In a white t-shirt, red bandana, and his older brother's black trench coat, Marty had cast himself as a Rambo John McClane type. The Marty of yesterday might have put up with Bobby's abuse, but this Marty came packing heat. He flashed his scuba knife and a three-quarter inch water pipe to Lisa and the rest of the impressed teens. In the car on the way to Bobby's house, the group of would-be killers revved themselves up like kids at a pep rally. In a breathless monologue, Lisa reminded them of Bobby's sins. Then Kaufman, not wanting to be forgotten in his star-making role as the group's seasoned mafioso, chimed in, You people brought me into this shit. I'm like, me and my people, we're what you would call serious people. Tonight, we're going to take a trip to a serious place. And I just got to know if everybody's got the balls for it. Marty didn't hesitate. We got the balls. Lisa, still playing the supportive Bonnie to his Clyde, backed him up. Yeah, we got the balls to do whatever we want to do. Kaufman nodded, oozing mafioso calm as he said, Good. Let's go kill the guy. Up next, Lisa and Allie carry out their homicidal plan. Now, back to the story. On July 14, 1993... 18-year-old Lisa Connolly, 17-year-old Allie Willis, and their group of teenage friends pulled up outside Bobby Kent's house. When Bobby emerged, they were surprised. Though they had cast him as the villain of the night's drama, he didn't look the part. In a white t-shirt, brand new jeans, and spotless sneakers, Bobby looked young, innocent, and filled with hope. But as Marty ushered him into Lisa's car, it was clear that it didn't matter. Forces had already been put into motion, and there was no going back. Marty had once again lured Bobby with promises of hooking up with Allie and racing her Mustang. So when the group of teenagers arrived at the same dark clearing on the western fringe of Broward County, Bobby was excited. As planned, 
Allie led Bobby down to the swampy water's edge, while Lisa, Marty, Kaufman, and the rest hung back by the cars. Then Kaufman gave Heather and Donnie their marching orders, sending them down to join Allie and Bobby. Heather's heart was pounding, her skin clammy, yet despite her misgivings, she cleared her throat and delivered her lines. Are there any alligators in there? It was the signal, the stage cue they'd agreed upon that would usher in the climactic scene of the whole production. On hearing it, all the players, save oblivious Bobby, froze. Were they really going to do this? Could they do this? Suddenly, Donnie sprinted forward and plunged his survival knife into the back of Bobby's neck. Bobby flinched, his hand flying to his neck as he turned to tell Donnie off. Bobby's angry words died in his throat as he noticed that his fingers came away covered in blood. His blood. Bobby screamed, instinctively reaching out to his best friend, searching for comfort, safety. I'm bleeding, Marty, Marty, I'm bleeding. Marty stepped in close and plunged his scuba knife deep into Bobby's stomach. Then, staring deep into his best friend's eyes, Marty twisted the knife hard. He jerked it upwards, pulling out a part of Bobby's lower intestine. Bobby looked at the fleshy pink of his intestine and begged, Marty, I'm sorry. Please, whatever it is, I'm sorry, Marty, I'm sorry. In response, Marty stabbed Bobby again and again. Caught up in the frenzy, the awful madness, Donnie leapt back in, frantically hacking and stabbing at Bobby. Finally realizing the ambush he'd walked into, Bobby broke out into a dead run, fleeing his attackers. Kaufman, his mafioso bravado deserting him, shrieked, he's getting away, we have to get him, we can't let him get away. Marty tackled Bobby, straddling him, his knife at the ready. Bobby begged, please, Marty, please. Marty grabbed Bobby by the hair, just like Bobby had done to him so many times. Then he slit his best friend's throat. Yet somehow, horribly, Bobby was still alive, gurgling as he begged Marty with his eyes. Seeking to end the horror once and for all, Kaufman raised the baseball bat high and brought it down hard. There was a crunch as Bobby's head caved in. And yet still, Bobby was alive. They could hear his struggling, shallow breaths. However, he was so fatally wounded that Kaufman felt calmer back in charge. He threatened Derek into helping him pick up the body. Then, lifting together, they threw Bobby Kent into the water and left him to the elements. Afterward, Lisa cleaned out her car with manic energy. As she polished and dusted, she kept insisting to Allie, Donnie, and Heather that she smelled blood. Like Lady Macbeth washing and re-washing her hands, Lisa sought to scrub the memory of what had happened to Bobby Kent from her car. Finally satisfied, Lisa gathered up the bloody baseball bat and the sticky knives and ran out onto the sandy shore. Falling to her knees, she began digging in the sand and burying the weapons. But just as quickly as she started, Lisa lurched to her feet, opting instead to hurl the knives into the ocean. Like Bobby, they would be laid to rest in a watery grave. 
Lisa jumped at the sudden arrival of Marty and Kaufman. Both of them had returned to the clearing to retrieve the sheath to Marty's scuba knife. He'd forgotten it in the heat of the moment. Kaufman immediately began stalking around. He fixed the gathered teens with a glare and told them, Marty and I spoke on the way back from the murder scene. He paused to let it sink in. That awful word. You do know that we murdered a guy tonight. Your friend. We took his life. When Kaufman was sure he had their unwavering attention, he began to threaten them. He was part of the mafia. He would not go down for this shit. He'd kill them first, all of them. Then Kaufman demanded that they all stay at the beach until they could agree on a shared alibi. And it was that, the suggestion of sharing something, that ushered calm, even enthusiasm, back into the group. Yes, they'd done that thing to Bobby by the water, but they'd done it together, and they would get past it the same way. According to author Jim Schutz, all seven teens agreed that if questioned by the cops, Marty would say that Bobby told him that he was going to meet up with some hillbilly girl he'd met from out west. Unfortunately, Marty would say, he thinks the hillbilly girl had connections to the dangerous Florida gang, the Davy Boys. Then the cops would be able to draw their own conclusions. Bobby had hooked up with some gang-affiliated chick and had gotten killed for his trouble. As for the seven of them, they would claim they'd been hanging out on the boardwalk of South Beach. To sweeten the plan, it was decided that Marty would call Bobby and leave him a voicemail. They all agreed that the act would suggest without a shadow of a doubt that Marty still believed his best friend to be alive. When it was all decided, the teens exhaled in relief. They'd be fine. They would leave the horror behind in the night and move on with their lives. That night, Marty called to leave his alibi, the voicemail that would prove he still believed Bobby was alive. At the sound of the beep, Marty said, Bobby, this is Marty Puccio. I called you. You asked me to call you when I got home. Then something happened neither Marty nor his friends on the beach had anticipated. Bobby's father, Fred Kent, picked up the phone. Hey, Marty. Marty panicked and hung up, and Fred was confused. He went to Bobby's room to check on him. His bed was empty, the sheets neatly made, and Fred felt the first inkling of fear as he realized his son had never come home. Things devolved quickly from that point. First, the Kents called the police and reported their son missing. They also mentioned the strange call they'd received the night before from Marty Puccio. Then Allie, terrified in the harsh light of day, holed up in her house and refused to answer any of Lisa's calls. Lisa instantly began freaking out. So she trekked all the way to her good friend Claudia's house. When Claudia ushered her inside, Lisa's body was in constant motion. Her words shot out of her as she told Claudia the whole tale. Bobby was a rapist and also a bully, so yeah, they'd done what they did or whatever, and now Lisa needed Claudia to drive her to the clearing so she could move Bobby's body. A long beat of silence. Then Claudia said, You murdered Bobby Kent? There was that word again. Lisa lashed out. I didn't say I murdered anybody. They killed him. I wouldn't say they murdered him. At that incomprehensible statement, Claudia declined. No, she would not be driving Lisa to the murder scene. No, she would not help Lisa move the body. She wanted nothing to do with any of it, and Lisa needed to leave. Now. 
Pissed off and surprised that Claudia wouldn't help her, Lisa cussed her out and exited the house with the same frantic panic with which she'd entered. Later that night, unable to stop thinking about Lisa's sweaty face and her insane words, Claudia picked up the phone and called the cops. While the Kents' parental concern wasn't enough to spur the police into action, the call they received from Claudia certainly was. Soon, the police paid Lisa a visit. They asked her about Claudia's claims that she'd witnessed Bobby's murder. Lisa responded with single-word denials. Despite her earlier panic, she was calm, giving nothing away. But the minute the police left, Lisa sprung into action. She called Marty to warn him. The cops were coming, so he'd better be ready. Despite Lisa's warning, Marty was a total mess when police knocked on his door. He regurgitated the alibi the seven of them had come up with about Bobby meeting the hillbilly girl with the Davy Boy gang connections. Throughout, Marty insisted that Bobby was his best friend and he was so worried for him. The police weren't sure if a murder had actually taken place or if a couple of dumb kids had just allowed their imaginations to run away with them. But as they listened to Marty's long, rambling spiel and took in his nervous eyes, they were certain of one thing. Marty Puccio was lying. Lisa's cousin, Derek, was reacting to the aftermath of the murder very differently. He had no desire to rationalize it or to lie. He felt sick about what he'd done. All Derek wanted was to confess. Derek's reaction is common. Research published in the Journal of Psychological Science explains that when people feel guilt about a specific behavior, they experience tension, remorse, and regret. This typically motivates reparative action, like confessing, apologizing, or seeking to repair the damage done. Derek couldn't bring Bobby back to life, but he could confess. So he contacted homicide detective Frank Ilaraza and told him everything. Ilaraza needed convincing. He'd worked homicide for years, and he didn't quite buy the story of a group of white suburban teens murdering their friend in cold blood. Then Derek led Ilaraza to the deserted clearing, to Bobby Kent's decomposing body half-submerged in the swampy water. And then it was undeniable. Ilaraza wasn't sure how the night had devolved, but Derek's words could no longer be chalked up to fevered teenage imaginings. Bobby Kent was dead, and Ilaraza was going to figure out how it happened. Up next, Allie and Lisa suffer consequences for their crime. Now back to the story. When 18-year-old Lisa Conley found out that her cousin, Derek DeVerco, had led the cops to Bobby's decomposing body, she was terrified. Her best friend, Allie Willis, was no longer taking her calls, and her boyfriend, Marty, was freaked out and near incoherent. In addition, Lisa was a month pregnant with Marty's child, so her body was surging with hormones as well as panic. Feeling alone and scared, Lisa turned to her mother and told her the whole story. Maureen was in shock. She could barely believe the words coming out of her daughter's mouth, but the look in Lisa's frantic eyes told her it was all true. Maureen insisted that Lisa speak to a lawyer immediately. Lisa exploded. She didn't need to speak to a lawyer. She needed to hide. They had enlisted the help of a mafioso to carry out the crime, a freaking mobster. If Kaufman found out that people were going to the cops, he would kill them. He would kill her. 
Not sure what to do, but wanting her daughter safe, Maureen agreed to get Lisa a motel room for the night, but only on the condition that she promised to speak to a lawyer the following morning. Lisa eagerly agreed. However, she had one more request. Lisa begged her mother to let Marty come to the motel hideaway with her. Maureen was stunned. Marty, the boy who Lisa had watched slit his friend's neck open? That Marty? Lisa melted down into a full-blown tantrum. She wanted Marty. She needed him. Lisa was her baby, Maureen's miracle child. She couldn't deny her anything. So she agreed. She would get Lisa and Marty a motel room. Later, when Marty arrived in Lisa's motel room in a muscle tee and tight black workout shorts, Maureen regretted her decision, especially as she watched the two teenagers surge towards each other and commence frantically making out. Their passion was so intense that Maureen felt uncomfortable being there. So she extracted another promise from Lisa that she would go see a lawyer in the morning, then Maureen fled the room, leaving her daughter to get back to the important business of ripping the clothes off of a suspected murderer. In the afterglow, Lisa and Marty were back in full Bonnie and Clyde mode. They made ardent promises to each other. They were going to gather a bunch of money from somewhere, and they were totally going to skip town and go someplace. They'd work out the details later. The point was, once they left Florida, all their problems would be in their rearview mirror. But the next morning, reality came knocking in the form of Maureen. Lisa needed to come with her to see a lawyer, now. For once, Lisa listened. She climbed out of her love nest with Marty, put on her shoes, and went out to go meet her mother. But by the time she stepped into attorney Jeff Smith's office, Lisa's common sense had already subsided. She didn't understand why Jeff kept insisting she had to turn herself into the cops. She didn't kill anyone. All she did was arrange for Bobby to be in a location where he happened to get murdered. What was the big deal? Meanwhile, across town, Detective Brian Rupp was having a similarly infuriating conversation with Allie Willis. Allie had called Brian and confessed her involvement in the night of Bobby's murder. However, like Lisa, Allie seemed to believe that confessing was the extent of her punishment. She too couldn't comprehend why she had to turn herself in. Finally, after learning that the punishment for murder in Florida was the electric chair, Allie tearfully agreed to go to the police station and turn herself in. But on the other side of town, Lisa wasn't convinced. She still believed that she and Marty could be together, that they could somehow flee Florida and ride off into the sunset. Determined, Lisa convinced her mother and Jeff to allow her to call Marty. She just wanted to speak to him before making any decisions about going to the cops. But when Lisa finally got Marty on the line, he had devastating news. The cops cracked Kaufman. He'd cried like a baby and confessed everything. It turns out he wasn't in the mafia after all. He was just a dumb kid. Then Marty told Lisa the worst part. He was in his mother's car. They were on their way to the police station. Marty was going to turn himself in. Lisa broke down into desperate sobs. She had done everything. The planning, the scheming, all of it. She had done it for love. For Marty. And now, 
Lisa turned her tear-streaked face to her mother and agreed. She would go to the cops. She would turn herself in. It was over. For Bobby's parents, a chapter in their lives was ending too. It was mid-July 1993 when two policemen pulled up to the house of Fred and Farah Kent. Ever since Bobby failed to return home on July 14th, they had been on tenterhooks, waiting in terror to find out where he was. The Kents moved to America from Iran in the mid-80s, Bobby in tow. They'd changed their last name from the Iranian Kayam to the far more anglicized Kent. They hoped that doing so would make it easier for them to grab their piece of the American dream. Bobby was the embodiment of that dream. Strong, good-looking, academically proficient, they had so many hopes for their son. On hearing that Bobby had been murdered by Marty Puccio, a boy they had known since he was seven years old, Farah Kent screamed. Her husband, Fred, broke down into inconsolable sobs. The sound of their grief was raw and horrible. Their son, their dream, was dead. Those horrible people, Marty Puccio and the rest, were responsible. And the Kents would have justice one way or the other. Their son would not die in vain. By November 1993, all of the teenagers were in jail awaiting trial, and the press had caught wind of the crime. The story of a group of suburban white kids brutally slaughtering their mutual friend was front-page gold. Journalists branded them the Broward Seven, and with that, they were off to the races. Papers were filled with fear-mongering articles asking parents, do you know what your kids are up to? The reading public responded with titillated terror. Lisa's lawyer, Jeff Smith, sought to fight against the antics of the press. He knew that getting his client a lighter sentence was contingent on his ability to control public opinion. So he called a meeting with the legal representation of all the other teenagers, hoping that they could perhaps come up with a strategy together, one that would save their adolescent charges from the electric chair. After hours of discussion, the team of lawyers, led by Jeff, came to a decision. They would try and float the theory that all the kids involved in Bobby Kent's murder were suffering from a phenomenon called urban psychosis. According to journalist Vaughn Bell, urban psychosis is the theory that higher rates of mental illnesses, like schizophrenia, are found in cities. This has led some to surmise that urban living is universally bad for mental health. The group of lawyers adapted the theory to their needs by claiming that the teens were numbed out by the violence of the urban world around them, so they couldn't distinguish between right or wrong. Therefore, they couldn't be held responsible for their actions. The police had done a fantastic job of gathering evidence and extracting incriminating confessions from the teenagers. So the group of lawyers felt urban psychosis was the best defense they could mount. They were wrong. The press had a field day with the idea that a bunch of coddled middle-class teenagers were suffering from some sort of shared madness of the urban variety. What a crock. The theory was so thoroughly lambasted that the lawyers discarded it wholesale. It wouldn't work. As Jeff tried to figure out a new defense, he realized that he had another problem, Lisa's parents. They were starting to bristle at the fact that their daughter, who at this point was five months pregnant with Marty's child, was still in jail. So a new meeting was called, 
This time, Jeff would answer to Maureen. As author Jim Schutz described, on a late Tuesday afternoon in the summer of 1994, one of Jeff Smith's legal assistants shepherded Lisa's family, her mother, her uncle, and other members of the Connolly clan, into Jeff's office. Then Jeff sat there and listened as Lisa's family excoriated him. They didn't understand what was taking so long. Why was Lisa sitting in jail? The only mistake she'd made was falling in with the wrong crowd of people. Lisa's uncle snarled that it was ridiculous what the papers were saying. It was ridiculous that the district attorney was going on TV and calling Lisa a murderer. At this, Jeff could no longer maintain his silence. He said, Look, you understand why they're calling these kids murderers, right? They murdered somebody. Lisa is charged with capital murder. The death penalty is a possibility. The electric chair. The state is making her out to be the ringleader. After re-explaining the stakes once more, Jeff sought to reassure them. Listen, he told them, no jury in Florida wants to send that little white girl to the chair. Lisa's uncle perked up, believing that Jeff's words meant Lisa would soon walk free. Jeff quickly squashed the absurd notion. He explained that he could get the state to offer a lesser charge of murder in the second degree. It would take some work, but he could get Lisa a reduced sentence. If Jeff was waiting for Lisa's family to thank him, he was quickly disappointed. Instead, Maureen told Jeff that he wasn't the fighter they needed. In fact, they had retained a new lawyer. His services were no longer required. As Jeff walked out of the room, he was stunned. Lisa's family actually believed she could help orchestrate a murder and walk free. It was madness but it was an insanity that he no longer had to be a part of. Lisa's family soon discovered their hopes that their daughter could walk away with a slap on the wrist were woefully misplaced. The families of the other teenagers were similarly disappointed. After an emotionally taxing trial, the jury handed down their decision. For delivering the signal that led to the first blow of Bobby's killing, 18-year-old Heather Swallers was convicted of second-degree murder and conspiracy. She served five years of a seven-year sentence and was released on February 14, 1998. For helping dump Bobby's still-breathing body in the water, 20-year-old Derek DeVerco, Lisa's cousin, was convicted of second-degree murder. He was released in 1999 for delivering the first stab of the homicidal frenzy that took Bobby's life, 18-year-old Donnie Semenek was sentenced to life in prison. He is still incarcerated today. For bashing Bobby's head in with a baseball bat, thereby delivering the fatal blow, 20-year-old Derek Kaufman was convicted of first-degree murder and conspiracy. He was sentenced to life in prison and is still incarcerated today. For slitting Bobby's throat and gutting him with a scuba knife, 20-year-old Marty Puccio was sentenced to death by the electric chair. However, in 1997, his sentence was commuted to life in prison. Marty is still incarcerated today. For the crime of helping to orchestrate the murder of Bobby Kent, 18-year-old Lisa Connolly was convicted of second-degree murder and conspiracy. Lisa served 11 years and was released on parole on February 3, 2004. 
As of 2013, Lisa was living in Pennsylvania with her husband and son. The daughter she had with Marty Puccio was raised partially by her grandparents and was last reported attending college out of state. And finally, for her part in luring Bobby to his death, 17-year-old Allie Willis was convicted of second-degree murder and conspiracy. She served six years in prison and was released on September 16, 2001. Allie hasn't spoken to Lisa since. Thanks again for tuning in to Female Criminals. We'll be back next week with a new episode. For more information on Lisa Connolly and Alice Willis, amongst the many sources we used, we found the book Bully, A True Story of High School Revenge by Jim Schutz, extremely helpful to our research. You can find all episodes of Female Criminals and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify. Not only does Spotify already have all of your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all of your favorite ParCast originals, like Female Criminals, for free from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker. To stream Female Criminals on Spotify, just open the app and type Female Criminals in the search bar. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. We'll see you next time. Female Criminals was created by Max Cutler and is a ParCast Studios original. Executive producers include Max and Ron Cutler. Sound design by Brian Golub, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, Freddie Beckley, and Paul Mahler. This episode of Female Criminals was written by Abiageli Adimegu, with writing assistance by Abigail Cannon. I'm Vanessa Richardson.